Welcome to another episode of The Southern Roost, a member of the Flyways and Highways Collective. If you are looking for the show about what's happening in the world of waterfowl, you are in the right place. From the sportsman's paradise capital of the world, I am your host, Aaron Head. Join with me in this endeavor is my co-host, Mr. Ryan Berthelot. Join us as we keep a pulse on the duck beat across our flyways. At Head Outdoors LLC, we aim for perfection in the CPR educational service and travel health industries. Whether you are a busy pharmacist, hustling nurse, healthcare provider of any sort, weary guide, or grinding fisherman, I make keeping up your license to practice easy to allow you more time to do what you love and to serve your business, clients, or patients by offering affordable CPR educational courses. Are you a hunter looking to go out of the country next year? Then go no further. Utilize our travel health service to get your vaccines and other medication recommendations started. Visit our website at headoutdoorsllc.square.site to see all the services we offer, or reach out to us directly at headoutdoorsllc at gmail.com to inquire about your next CPR certification or vaccine recommendations before your next excursion. All right, welcome everybody. Uh, we got the myth, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Ramsey Russell on. Mr. Ramsey, how are you doing today? Man, I'm doing good. Glad to be here. Thank you, Aaron. Gotcha. We are honored for in your presence for sure. I've been a longtime fan of your podcast. It kind of got me to where I am today uh, in a lot of ways. I know we met personally uh, banding with uh, Dr. Paul Link here in uh, Louisiana. Uh, but then uh, the reason why I even found him was because I heard about uh, his podcast you did with him several years ago. And so that's how it all kind of came full circle in the waterfowl world. So Isn't it a crazy world we live in? For sure. All right. And... So, and we got our co-host here, Mr. Ryan Berthelot. How you doing, man? Appreciate y'all being on today. All right. So, Mr. Ramsey, we'll jump right into it. So, I guess first question I got for you is kind of, how did GetDucks.com came to be? So, kind of what's your origin story? Very briefly, I've told it before, but very briefly, I'll, I, it, can, it can spin into a long story. But very briefly, it started with a really, really, really bad hunt. I uh, When I got out of grad school and got a job, I didn't have a lot of money, but I had some money and, and I, I really wanted to go to Canada. I really wanted to experience, I really wanted to experience wild goose hunting and, uh, shoot, shoot some, some, some snow geese, shoot some, uh, and I had shot snow geese, but I wanted to go up there and shoot migrator Canada. It's really what I, what I was really after. And we booked a hunt from, uh, from an agency at the time, the, uh, world's foremost at the time. And they're, they're now operating under a different, different name brand, but, uh, it was just a, it was a trip from hell. That's, that's it in a nutshell. It was the biggest waste of money and time. And we still talk about it. It was just a, a disaster. And, and I, and I got out and started, uh, the internet was not then what it is now, but I got out and started doing some research and I found a guy in Alberta. I still wanted to go shoot migrator Canada's, um, and brought some friends up there. We loved it so much. We went back a second year and the third year, gosh, I bet two dozen people came up there because of me. And, uh, and he called me out to his shop and said, Hey, I want you to be a booking agent. I go, what the hell is a booking agent, man? I'm a, I'm a forester with the U S federal government. I just do this for fun. And he just kind of explains said, no, we want you to bring hunts and here's kind of how it works and everything else. And I came back and chat rooms were the rage back then, not social media. And, and, uh, I had a presence in chat rooms and started kind of, you know, doing my thing. And, but I realized I need one of them newfangled web pages. If I was really going to get some traction with helping him do that. And at the time I was also selling, uh, not selling, but, but conducting, uh, habitat type stuff. And so when getducks.com was born, it was on a very free page that a late buddy of mine built. And, uh, there were two products for sale and it was an Alberta hunt that we went for a long, long time with. And it was uh, some habitat consulting and that's, I never dreamed in a million years, never dreamed in a million years. It would, it would turn into the behemoth that's become now we've got 3,800 Google index pages and, and, and it can continually scales and grows and, and beyond Alberta, we're selling hunts all over the world. And, um, actually I, I wish I could say I was smart enough to figure this thing out and, and, and put a plan together and do it, but it, Honestly, just kind of came together accidentally. Awesome. You know what, Ramsey? You talked about having how it started from a bad hunt. And I had the same exact experience in my first time. I went to Stuttgart. I was probably 
right in college, junior in college, 20 years old, four or five guys got together. And uh, I'm not going to name the outfitter. He's still in business over there. But he, I don't want to say promised us the world, but he told us, listen, you know, you guys will have your own little timber hole to yourself. It'd be great, fantastic, all that kind of stuff. And we got there. He showed up 25 minutes late to the blind. He stuck 14 of us in one duck blind on an oxbow lake. Oh, boy. Um, oh, yeah, man. Um, he spent $6,000 on his dog that uh, refused to, to retrieve a bird. He had an old, uh, I guess maybe a 10-year-old lab that he didn't care about. And that, 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 that dog double retrieved. Uh, both birds were killed that morning. We shot two green wings, and that was it. And then uh, we said, man, listen, I don't know if something's going to change with this. I, if there's one thing not to have any ducks, it's another not to show up on time. That kind of got to me a little bit. And, uh, I don't think I've been a stuck guard since. I have no urge to go back. Well, that part of Arkansas can be real good, but you bring up a really good point. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll add to this, to that first question, I'll add, I'll add to say this. There were people, as we began to emerge, and I, I was still working for the federal government, you know, and I kind of did this moonlighting. Uh, and consulting moonlighting. But I, I said, you know, uh, there were a lot of people that said, you cannot make a living doing this business. This this is ridiculous. Nobody's going to trust you. Besides that, anybody can find anything on the internet. And it's the truth. Do you know that right now with an iPhone and cellular connectivity, you have more information, more readily accessible than George W. Bush did when he was sworn into office? That's crazy. Absolutely. That's the power, but, but the but the downside of that is, even though we can find anything on the internet, anybody can be anything on the internet. And what I have seen in the past twenty years, because two thousand twenty three is our twentieth year in business, what I have seen is that social media just pours rocket fuel on that fire. You know, there are literally many many outfitters around the country and around the world that don't even don't even have the, the capitalization to build a web page. Web pages are cheap compared to back in the days we built it. It's cheap. And and they don't even take the time to do that. And if they do build a web page, go look at it. We we we've we've uh written so much business over the year for people telling us, you know, y'all have the most complete, you've got the most accurate. You know, because if you're a price point shopper and some people listening do select to go places based on uh less financial mobility than others. Great. That, there's no problem with that. You can take a sharp pencil and a calculator and go to my webpage and figure up tit for tat everything that hunt's going to cost you all in. And ask yourself when you see a hunt online that does not divulge all the critical details, why? And, and you wouldn't believe how many lodges in America, to include Alaska, and around the world that you're sitting there, a group of men are sitting there not knowing until they start talking after about the third glass of wine, that everybody paid something different, like the, like the you sell car lot. That that is despicable. Yeah. And and if we got a little bit into this, we started seeing that. And and really and truly, it took a. I think it took a while, but we got there. You know, I don't say uh, that that on any given day anywhere in the world uh, you're going to go shoot your heart's content of birds because we we offer wild bird hunts. You know, and, and you made a very good point again. That it's beyond the birds. Nobody can control the bird. But what you've got to control is control the controllables. And what we've done worldwide is I, I personally go and I've gotten real. Uh, what am I trying to say? I don't just fly off and go meet somebody. I got to do. I got to do a lot of interviews, a lot of conversation, and gain some confidence for I'm gonna spend some time and money to go visit somebody in another part of the world, especially let alone here in the, here in the U.S. But at the same time, once we get to that point, I put boots on the ground and compare them not, well, this is the best I've ever had in Mississippi. No, I compare them to other outfits in the world we've worked with for 20, 20 years. I'll tell you something else. When you start dealing with foreign country hunts, is uh, other countries do it differently than do American duck hunters. The way the way they put stuff out, the way the, the, the go to Latin America, man, those guys don't even start thinking about dinner till 10 or 11 o'clock, in which times I'm I'm asleep. It's a whole it's a whole different process. And so how we've evolved as a business is is a, a truth and advertising of sorts. I, I put my name re reputation on it. I, I cannot guarantee birds in most parts of the world, but I can guarantee these people are going to be what they say. It's going to be an experience. It's going to be good. It's going to be quality. You're not going to find yourself uh, like a can of sardines in a pit blind with a breaking ass dog. But uh, at the same time, I don't, I don't guarantee birds. And, and 
how we transitioned, I can remember 20 years ago, if you opened up the outdoor magazines, looked online, what little there was, you'd see these ads of these guys selling foreign hunts. And it was literally for quote, discriminating hunters for discriminating hunters. And I'm thinking like a great poop pond commercial, you know, and, and I'm like, <laughs> I don't even know those people. And and besides that, most duck hunters I know, I don't get into their business. We don't talk about that stuff. We just go duck hunting. You know, real duck hunters want real duck hunting experiences. And that that's how we evolved to be just a real duck hunt for real duck hunters. Amen to that. Ram- sure. Ramsey, I wanted to ask you one more question. I want to go back before getting ducks as well. I know you're from Brandon, Mississippi. I know that's south of the Delta, south of Jackson down there. What was duck hunting like for you as a kid? Believe it or not, uh, my grandfather is is from the on the banks of the Mississippi River, Greenville, Mississippi. That's where I was born and raised till about junior high school. Uh, that's where most of the duck hunting was back then. It is today. He was a duck hunter, and I grew up hearing the stories and and all that good stuff. Him and my daddy, and my uncle, and and the associates that would come over. I'd go out with him as a child um, and and dove hunt starting first trying to beat the dog to, to, to the duck to the doves to, to then get the 20 gauge it was way too big for me and and loading it one one shell at a time and going off somewhere in a safe distance and and learning to hunt doves and and he was he wasn't that generation like we are today i think those old timers didn't have children around adult settings back back in the 60s and the 70s at least for the people i grew up children were uh you, you were you just didn't speak till spoken to it was quiet you didn't play you didn't rough house men went to go do men things and and so uh 15 16 17 years old is when i would have started going to camp with him and he he aged out he hell he died when he was 72 that when i was a senior in high school but he had he had uh in poor health and, and age had aged out before it got to me going duck hunting and i was actually just out of high school two or three years and was hunting in a part of the world that ain't renowned for shooting ducks in the state of Mississippi, I was actually deer hunting up about 20 foot up in a tree one evening and, and uh, with a big swamp behind me, beaver dam and every wood duck in the County started flying in there. And I remember them stories and, and, you know, had never duck hunted, had never killed a duck. And I went out there and found the next evening, sat out there until about four o'clock in the afternoon or got there at four o'clock in the afternoon and didn't know nothing about nothing about killing a duck. And y'all know what happened at a wood duck roost. Then they start coming. Oh, and uh, I'm, I don't even have a pair of waders. I'm just sitting on, <laughs> sitting on, sitting on the dry bank, you know, watching ducks come in. And they were landing kind of over in the thicket. I didn't do much shooting that evening. And I pulled the trigger one time that evening. One time I pulled the trigger. And I'm sitting there. And uh, and about this time, two ducks came in. It was pitch black dark. Thank God I had them young eyeballs. And I pulled the trigger one time and killed a pair of mallards. And that, hey. that's, that's kind of sort of what did it. And and, uh, and and from there, throughout a lot of my college and stuff like that, I would I would jump shoot doves, go maybe too late in the evenings, uh, maybe go in the morning and pass, shoot, shoot the woodies coming out or something like that. And, gosh, I must have been mid to late 20s when uh, – fraternity brother of mine we were AGRs at Mississippi State University invited me to come to Arkansas and, and duck hunt and we went on, on Arkansas Public that he'd grown up hunting on that his dad had grown up hunting on and all the mother boys we hunted with and the limit was two miles and that was it that was it I, one of those weekends over there I went out we we drove a short distance to uh, Clarendon Arkansas and I got me an Alvin Taylor duck call and that boy taught me one note he said don't worry about nothing but this right here Beep. Just that one note. <laughs> he said, and when you figure that note out, then you can start putting it together. And golly, the, the, the noise I made racket going up and down the road, driving my truck, trying to hit that note. And let me tell you what, when I hit that note, it was all she wrote, man. I learned how to call. And and that, you know, golly, I, it, it's, uh, it's hard for me to imagine. Start, that, that's been, gosh, man, that's been 30-something years ago. And I never would have dreamed back then of starting something like this. Man, that's started, awesome. I was about probably 15 years old at Chafalaya Basin. I was the same thing you were doing. I was deer hunting. I shot my first buck uh, on a flooded pipeline. And I had a low fog that morning, a high fog, I should say, by a treetop high. I'm in this box stand and I'm staring snow geese in the eye coming down that pipeline. I said, I, I called my dad on the walkie talkie. We didn't have cell phones then yet. 
So uh, caught him on a walkie-talkie, told him what the deal was. Said, "Listen, I'm I'm gonna go back to the house and get a shot. I'm gonna try these wood ducks and maybe some some smoke geese." That was the last time I ever hunted deer. Ever since then, man, uh, that I was can, seventeen years. I can remember the first duck I ever called in. Yeah, and uh, <clears throat> heck, I was in grad school. We were hunting public on Catahoula Lake. I knew how to call. I made that note then, okay. and we were sitting in some water elm and. Called in a greenhead on Catahoula Lake. My buddy killed him. And I can remember that. And, and it's just, it's a building process. It, it quickly escalated. I'm one of those guys, if you can't tell, I, I get tunnel vision. You know, I'm just, I'm just absolutely, I get tunnel vision and plow yep. full steam ahead. You know, sure. it, you had a better experience than I did at Catahoula because my first experience, it was uh, right at sunset or sunlight. And there's 2,000 canvas backs. I don't know what they are. I'm 19 years old. I'm hell calling out. I'm like, like an idiot. Yeah. So I'm thinking, about, and that was the year I don't think canvasbacks were even open that year. That may have been 2011, 2010, maybe. I don't know. But uh, I sounded like the biggest dummy on the lake. And they let me know that back at the launch, too. <laughs> well, I've been but, to Catahoula Lake and uh, still have never killed a canvasback. That's one thing that's alluded to me. I killed a many a species. But I don't know how, Aaron. I really been don't. there. My buddy's got a blind and it's in a good spot. It's not for the diver holes, but it's. It's crazy how that go works in duck hunting. And I, and I mentioned that later on, but go get you like three dozen black jugs and oh, just yeah. wait. Like they'll be there. You don't don't even sit in a blind. Go find a little dead tree, a deadhead somewhere, and I promise you, man, they're always. They don't. They don't really care. They don't. Just For get sure. their fly away, and they'll they'll come in. Yeah. Right. Yep. So getting yep. back to getting back to this, Mr. Ramsey. So we got kind of the brief story, kind of your early years duck hunting, how you got to get ducks, and so. Now you're all over the world. I've heard podcasts with you talking about Mongolia, Azerbaijan, Argentina, Mexico, Canada. So excluding the North American flyway, so excluding Canada, Mexico, what's like the other first international duck you killed, like some kind of weird species over in Russia, Africa, et cetera? Repeat the question now. What's the first what? First like international duck you killed. But I know you went to Canada, so I'm talking about excluding North American flyway ducks. Argentina. Argentina, and and that that again really kind of sort of put me on the road for uh, kind of reinforced my my get ducks thing. It is um, I'd gone to Texas Panhandle. I'd met a guy. I think he's a taxidermist. I think he's still a taxidermist, and like a lot of taxidermists and asphalt contractors and stuff like that. Uh, seems like a lot of people make a run at wanting to book hunts and do what do do the bit as I do. Okay. And 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 I'm gonna I'm gonna say right now, not just because she's walking through the kitchen, but uh, really and truly, it wasn't it wasn't until my wife, to my kid, to my daughter, my youngest kid, went in, went to school, and my wife started taking over some of the administrative part that get ducks became really rounded a corner on becoming something professional, and and it very quickly escalated a few years later to where I needed to leave the federal government and commit myself because you know here's the deal if if uh, we just got to realize that if somebody like yourself is going to book a trip with us, they deserve our full and undivided attention. I don't need, you know, they don't, they don't divide a part-time attention because I'm working in the government. I'm in the government meeting. I'm going to look at timber or, or I got ducks to mount or I got asphalt or I got roofing or, or all this part-time crap that exists. And, and, and I'm telling you, uh, I, I saw something just the other day, a client sent me and this, this is where, this is the state of affairs with the world today, with social media, with accessibility to people. Somebody sent me a Facebook post of someone that bought a hunt from Argentina from me at one of our flagship lodges in 2016. That's a long time ago, Aaron. Okay. And he is now using those pictures from our hunt to sell another hunt because he's in my business. But now, if he's if he's using pictures taken six years ago to sell another hunt, has he even been there? Think about Interesting. that. Interesting. What do you, I mean, money's money, and 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 it take it, money's hard to come by, and money's precious. And you, you you put somebody put your faith in somebody. You see what I'm saying? There's just a lot of that kind of business that goes on around here. And back to your question, uh, somebody was in the part time. I didn't know no better. I this man, this. There ain't a book to this kind of stuff. You just figure it out by by sticking your uh, sticking your hand on the hot oven a few times, right? Right. And uh, and I went down to Argentina, and it was a 
Well, I can tell you what, it was a lot better hunting than anything I've ever done in the state of Mississippi, uh, numbers wise, but it was a complete and utter shit show. It, it, that's just, that's, an, and, and, but that's okay. I didn't know better at the time. I'd been to Argentina one time and wow, it, it, it was pretty dang good. I've learned in the 20 years since it was pretty dang bad relative to Argentina. And here's an example I'd use. Just imagine you were in Argentina or, or some foreign country and it's seen all this outdoor television stuff. Uh, coming off of the United States and you wanted to come and experience uh, something in America, you know, uh, flooded timber hunting or snow goose hunting or pick, pick a flavor here in the United States, that high quality stuff. And, and you started searching and you ran across some boy in central Georgia or um, somewhere that ain't got ducks. You know what I'm saying? And, 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 and boy, it sounded good. They, it sounded good. And you showed up to Georgia, not to Stuttgart. You follow what I'm saying? Right. There's a lot of that kind of disparity down here. And because everybody wants to, wants to be in this business. And, um, so I went down to Argentina. It was pretty darn good. And I ended up trying to have some boys wanted to go with me the following year. And I tried to call that boy and, um, to book his trip. He didn't call. He didn't answer back for a week. And I called and called. I didn't hear about him two weeks. Remember he's part-time. And I ended up calling the outfitter direct just to get some details. And I, and I, boy, did I get some details. I realized that it was way back 25 years ago that he had included airfare from Miami because it was cheap back then. And, uh, and so when I looked at the numbers I'd been given versus what, what it actually was, the boy had removed the airfare and sacked another thousand dollars on top. That was just absolute criminal. Mm. And I just remember, I just remember walking around thinking of this saying, you know what, if this is the way this industry is, if somebody were to come in and bring value, it would be a leg up. And to your point, now I'm going to find the answer to the question. I'm, I'm tired of talking about that, but <laughs> when, when we, we ended up going, my, my very good friend, Mr. Ian Mullen, uh, and I went on that trip and we shot ducks and we shot that was, that was one of the years you could still about two years before they closed the goose season the goose hunting down in argentina was amazing and the first exotic bird i ever shot was a magellan goose and i shot a bunch of them and ashy heads and then uh the first duck i shot international would have been a rosy bill poacher and i had read a book i don't know somewhere along the way i'd read a book about a guy that traveled around the world and and did you know hunted some of these countries and, and I, and I realized that, but as, as you started, as I started digging and started digging, I realized there was a lot of unexplored parts of the world, uh, that, that had been just kind of not brought any attention to. That's what led me to places like Mongolia. That's what led me to places like Azerbaijan, you know, there's parts of the world that, uh, their ducks are practically everywhere. You know, Pakistan was an amazing place. Mongolia was an amazing place. It's not a kind of place I'd want to go every year all the time, but they were they were very amazing places. Going up to the mountain to Peru, uh, New Zealand, Australia, and and Romania, other countries. It was it was just quite. It's been quite an amazing journey. Fascinating. Um, so kind of getting into that, spinning off that subject right there. So you've been all all these cultures. I know sometimes you have to kind of go somewhere from what I've listened to on your podcast, you kind of got to teach people how to hunt. Like they might have a setup where they know there's a bunch of ducks here, but they don't know how to hunt them hearsay. Right. So I guess my question leading up to that is, do you know of any or anything you've experienced where like duck hunting culture wise, any type of niche thing that's just totally out there? Like in America, for example, we have body booting layout boat hunting. We have way, we have like a thousand different ways to hunt ducks, pass shooting, decoying. Have you seen anything else out there in other parts of the world that are just out there from what a normal yeah, American you know, South. We, we got body booting, we've got layout boat hunting, we've got flooded timber, we've got marsh, we've got we've got our methods. Right. And, and I'm I'm fortunate to have done nearly all of it, our hunting methods, uh, to include sink box up in Nova Scotia. And once you start getting outside the US borders and regulations and accepted behaviors and customs. Whew, it's a whole world. I can say that I have shot waterfowl at 16,000 foot elevation. I've shot them uh, 400 foot below sea level in Netherlands. I've, I've shot them out of boats, standing by trees and natural blinds and elaborate blinds. Uh, oh my gosh. I've shot them at night. I've shot them by spotlight. I've shot them over bait. I've shot them under motor power flying 
what I felt like 60 miles an hour in a little <laughs> old speed boat across the white sea, catching four foot waves like, like John, uh, John, uh, James Bond, uh, shooting them. And, and it's just right about the time I, I think I've seen and done it all. Somebody does something different. I, I've shot them, uh, guys, mouth calling, duck calling, electronic calls. It's just, it, it never ceased to amaze me the practice of how people duck hunt. And, and it's, 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 it's been a, an amazing ride. And I, I've appreciated every single bit of it. What's the most scenic place you've hunted in the United States, you think? You know, out west, out, hands down too, out, out west. You know, uh, Utah. U- Utah has got one of the most unheard of amazing waterfowl histories there's a club i hunted at one time it used to be called the chesapeake bay club still in existence back during the market hunting days and they named it that so because back when they could they could kill those canvas bags and ship them back to the market chesapeake bay held the premium on canvas yep. bags everything else was second second call and they would they would stamp their they would stamp their name on the crate and get top dollar. You know what I'm saying? Chesapeake Bay canvas bags. And they would, yep. that's how they, they managed to get top dollar. But Utah comes immediately to mind in terms of scenic because you're sitting out in that beautiful valley, whether you're on the, the, the lake proper or you're on some of the, the, uh, the marshes up around uh, the Bear River, you've got, you've got a mountain range behind you and a mountain range in front of you, and it is absolutely spectacularly beautiful even if you see a city across the way at the base of that mountain the way the way those lights in the daylight just twinkle like stars it's it just it's it's it's, it's spellbinding parts of wyoming montana uh california i've seen some beautiful sites out in california new mexico uh the land of enchantment arizona surprisingly it, it, it's it's the, the western landscape is is just amazing you know, and I've hunted Arizona a few times, and it's always a surreal experience. The fact that I'm, I'm hunting ducks in the middle of Sonoran Desert, there should be no water here, much less waterfowl. Usually, by the time I go, the pressure is pretty much gone. So I have this entire refuge to myself, for the most part, I won't name it, but um, it is an absolutely just insane experience. And I, same thing in Wyoming. I, I hunted antelope in Wyoming, and if we kill out early, we tag out early, we'll go. Wood, uh, I'm not wood ducks, but ducks on the uh, North Platte River a little bit, sometimes along uh, a couple other little bodies of water. But you're right. The further west you go, the more out of your comfort zone you are, the more you remember those hunts. I've noticed that. And it doesn't matter if I've shot one bird in that hunt or I was the limit in the first 20 minutes. I remember every single one of them. Every single I, one. I, rem- I remember. You know, at some point in time, you start traveling 250, 300 days a year, and um, it, it, it all kind of starts to blend together like a gumbo. Yeah. Somebody asked me that question last weekend out in Santa Fe. And I said, you know, my memories are sometimes a gumbo. I, I can, I can, I can pick out a piece of sausage, a pick of okra, a grain of rice or shrimp or whatever <laughs> you put in, but, you know, but really and truly it, it's just, it's a lot of it just all kind of blends together. Yeah. But you, uh, you, amazing. Do you journal your hunts at all? I know. I mean, you hunt again, like you no, said so much. I, I don't, I don't, I, I, I don't, you know, the only thing I keep up with, and I started it back in 1994, uh, just because it, it, I, I keep up with my dog's retrieve. This little char dog I got, I don't know why I did it. And, uh, but I started keeping record of how many she retrieved in a day, in a season, career totals. But and I've always done that. But now for her, and it's a major pain of butt. I, I keep up with how many uh, of each species and places she hunts. Yep. And uh, probably won't do that next time. I might, you know, but, but it's a, it's a, uh, and that's just, you know, and it's not a real index. Uh, I don't want to know how many ducks I've killed. I really don't. It, it to me, yeah. to me, numbers cheapens it. But it's fun yeah. to go back and you know, it's it's just a comparison of, of here's my index of a, of a season. How many? How yeah. many? How many did my dog pick up? You know, so, well, yeah. on, on this particular day, last year, the year before, the year before, you know, they're twenty percent ahead or thirty percent behind. That's kind of an index yeah. of how my season's going. And, uh, but I don't, I look at, I look at Instagram, um, mm-hmm. which I refused back in the day to do until, until somebody, uh, post, he was supposedly working on our behalf and ended up building the account and posting it. But, but it's, uh, so I started my own and, and it, and I really, uh, 
it's so weird how it's a it's just a picture stream. You pick, you know, hey, wait for next year. Hey, enjoy today. And I started writing thoughts, you know, along that. And that that's where we kind of made. I think uh, I hear a lot about some of the narrative, some of the captions we write for it. But that's how I document. If I'm traveling, yeah, every day or three or four times a week. I will, of course, I do the stories. I do maybe some videos and reels now, and I post a picture and write a story about that day. That's as, that's as close as I come to keeping a journal. In a past life, I was a journalist, and I always swore I was going to fill out a journal every year and do it and keep up with it just to see if I could track any kind of patterns, right? Uh, moon phases, temperature drops, barometric pressure, you know, where birds moving in this way, that way. Uh, did it this year, 25 hunts. Uh, did keep track of all the birds I killed and everything with that as well. But uh, of course, no pattern to any of that, right? It's just, it's just an absolute mess. But I can find myself now, this is being recorded in April. I'll look back at it probably once every two or three days. You know, yeah. I, I don't know what it is about it. There's hunts I just want to remember. Um, Aaron, you know the one I'm thinking of. We we shot a limit in the rain and thunder and we almost died. And it was the most ridiculous thing we ever oh, done yeah. in our lives. But we killed a bunch of birds and I have that written down and, I don't know. It's uh, it's just been one of those things that I think adds a little bit. It makes duck season 12 months for me, right? I think that's one of those situations where uh, I tend to have a, a falling off, I guess, maybe about April or May where I want to get into fishing or turkey hunting, something like that. But it's making water fast season 12 months for me, you know? Right. That's why, Calico, we're here today. we got this podcast going and rolling. It kind of exactly. helps extend our, exactly. extend our season, kind of document, journal our, our history for even yeah. future generations. That's the cool thing about technology today including instagram all that stuff still there you can always go back and look at it uh so yeah, on like to uh archive that yeah yeah like just like a basic archive so uh ramsey of course in louisiana they're having a a uh groundbreaking revelation coming up this summer where something near dear to us coastal marsh hunters in louisiana is the model duck season's changing for us for the first time and who knows how long so for the Up first down down well yeah it's to protect them i mean it's all science-based you know it's like what the wildlife fisheries puts out for reason why they're doing things but essentially it's first 15 days of the season you can't bag any so yeah. currently right now in this past season it was you can bag one per person per day and uh that was the limit but now they're going to close it for the first 15 days so i guess my question pointed leading that up into is do you have any model duck experiences i guess in your travels yeah i do i've i've um uh... I'm an experienced collector per se. I, and I, I thought formerly I, I would have described myself as a collector and, and I keep up with subspecies and I, I know uh, my best estimate is about 126 or 27 subspecies or races of waterfowl worldwide. And uh, I don't mount them all. I've, I've given a lot of them away to clients that wanted them or for whatever reason, I just didn't mount them. Um, but I take pictures and I treasure them. And, I, and, and getting to this is um, there's 13 matter-like subspecies worldwide. And, I, and I've, I've shot the five in North America, which are um, uh, mallard, the mallard duck, the uh, American black duck, coastal model, Florida model, and uh, which uh, the Mexican mallard. Mexican duck, yep. Yep, which I've actually shot uh, in Mexico. And we're talking about Arizona. Mm -hmm. And I was hunting with some really good dudes down there. And, uh, boy, they saved a mallard hole for Ramsey. I mean, they saved it. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, it's just one of those things. You really can't stockpile ducks, right? We all know that. <laughs> we went out and we went to this beautiful little wetland. And I, and I felt like if I looked, if I squinted hard enough to the south, I could see the Mexican border. We were that close. And um, went to this little water hole surrounded by mesquites and trees. And we walked in, a few ducks got out. And the, the, it looked like a, a it, it just looked like a, a slaughterhouse with all the feathers on the water. All those ducks been in there for so long. And we threw our decoys out, and about nine o'clock, we hadn't seen a duck. And we're wondering, where did somebody else shoot it? Did, did, did uh, somebody put some fresh water on something the ducks moved to? Who knows? I mean, ducks will move like that. And they're directly, you know, 9 30, 10 o'clock, a, um, a mallard <clears throat> started spinning around. And he was working, making his way in there nice and slow. And he finally kind of went behind me, behind the trees, and was lining up to come right down the pipe over the decoys. And uh, it got to that point where you quit calling. You just kind of held your breath and was waiting on him to pop out into view. And something caught my eye and right above me. 
right above me was a pair of ducks. I didn't know where to come from the left, not the right where he's supposed to come in. And instinct kicks in, and I go, bam, bam. Right little 28 gauge, splash, splash. And it was a pair of Mexican ducks, beautiful pair of Mexican ducks. And so I was, I was proud to get them. You know, there's a lot of going on with this uh, model duck. I know that Phil Lebretzky had or has done some work uh, for the state of Texas looking at there's been a lot of what Texas calls dusky ducks, which is a, a, just kind of a designation for uh, hen mallards, model ducks, black ducks, whatever have you like that. And and uh, there seems to be, a, a, and I'm not speaking for the state of Texas, so or Phil Lebrecht, I'm just saying what I'm what I'm hearing. It is it seems to be that maybe in the traditional area of model ducks down on that prairie, there seems to be maybe a possible decline in their numbers, but again, in dusky ducks in non-traditional areas, let, let's just say out there around from Big Bend over towards Laredo. Okay. And, you know, the speculation, at least my speculation is, it's, it's possible, same as Louisiana, that, that there's some there's some habitat degradation going on that are, that are displacing those birds. You know, model ducks especially uh, are, are, they like the marshes. Those, those coastal models like the marshes. So if they're starting to use non-traditional areas, it could be why, why the question is if they're shifting, why are they shifting? That's just a question. So I, I hate it, you know, but uh, there are some real habitat issues going on on the Gulf Coast. Oh, for sure. It's no secret that yeah. Louisiana loses football fields upon football fields of distance every year. And it's, we have a every minute habitat problem, not a harvest problem is what I'm not speaking for, you know, losing a wildlife fisheries or any kind of science faction at all but just from what i've seen in my relatively short 31 years of life it's it's gone downhill from when i was fishing in lake you know lake charles area when i was a kid and even in the texas coast area when i was growing up fishing as a kid with my grandpa it's just it's changed and uh, i think that's probably the real issue leading to it you had a question ryan yeah i'm gonna say this i think i think that closure is going to be insanely effective i really do because i think back at the model ducks that i've, I've harvested over the years Usually after the first five to seven days, they're widened up. They're smart. They're not going to come around any kind of roseau cane, any, any kind of blind they would they could possibly think. They're not going to get it. Most of the time by the end of the season, and you've seen it, they won't even cross water. They'll just nope. stay on well, the marsh line. They're, you're hunting in their backyard. Yeah. They know. They know. You know, they're wising up. I, matter of fact, we've got an episode there in Monday on duck season somewhere. Uh, Bradley Cohen came back on. We were talking about how hunting pressure affects duck hunting. And I want to say that in the state of Arkansas, I want to say he said something to the fact that on the second day of the season, on the second day of the season, hunting productivity declines by 50% statewide, and it never recovers. The duck's wising up real quick. Mm -hmm. And and if that's what it takes, if that's what it takes to conserve a species and keep keep their population stable and viable, then I'm I'm all for it. I mean, if 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 I can't hunt them for fifteen or twenty days, that's fine. Can't hunt them at all. You know, y'all may remember you talking about the campusbacks. You know, there wasn't it wasn't too long ago. I would been a college kid. Campusback. There were more five. I think a five year moratorium on campusbacks. Could hunt them at all for five years, and their populations rebounded. So, Randy, you hunted during the the point system days too, I imagine. No, about a little before my time. I, I, I was, I, I kind of ripped. Well, I may have just didn't recall it. Cause I didn't pay attention, but, <laughs> but it's uh, back in the good old days. But, 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 uh, but now I really started duck hunting back during the uh, advent of uh, adaptive harvest management. But that's when I, I, I would say that better defines my career. Yeah. It's, uh, the reason I asked that, I believe a hen canvas back was a hundred points at the time. I believe probably, that was it. Probably was. was. You shot one probably, it may have been, it may have one canvas backs, I think were. Yeah. Do you recall what the yep. point system was on model ducks? You think, Ryan? The- I, you know what? I could probably do some deep digging on that. That's a great question. I imagine it's probably pretty high. I don't feel like model ducks were ever at a point where, like, man, we can shoot two or three of these in person. I don't I mean, remember. I've been doing this since. I'd, 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 be interested, I'd be interested to know what the what the points were on model ducks. I'd, I'd guess twenty five or thirty, maybe. I was. Gonna I, say I wouldn't probably, say that. What was a hen mallard? It was one hundred. Right, you were it was done. 100 points for him, Mallard, too, done. you were done? Yeah. yeah the first duck can put you at 100 over and stop you. So you can shoot, you know, typically a guy can go out and shoot, say, uh, three greenheads at 75 points and a hen. Now you got 175, you stop. How do you y'all, hen, y'all feel about that? About the point system in general. I mean, like, not, not what the point system was, but 
I've always wondered what it would have been like to go back to those days and hunt over the point system, you know? I feel like I was maybe a more discerning hunter. I think I've, I've learned identification a lot better when I was younger. Um, you have to, I would imagine, you know? Yeah, I think so. But, I think so, too. I know those, uh, back in the 80s, those three-duck days were pretty rough from what uh, all my forefathers tell me and all my duck hunting mentors. So, but You know, and to say that, we talked about wood ducks earlier. Probably one of the best days of my life as a teenager was the day that wood ducks went from two to three. I was oh boy, boy. I, I don't I don't think I, I left the timber holes for the entire season that year. And then I thought about it, you know, I thought about it this year too. I looked back at the numbers we killed this year. How many times have I settled for three birds and I've done a lot more work for them than I did for a wood duck, you know? I remember I'd go shoot three scott back in the day. And I think for deep a, a deep south hunters, I think, you know, it's like uh, so much time on private mm-hmm. land in the deep south is spent trying to feed ducks, be it, be it millets and mussel management or whatever you're planting and doing and all that time and money. But, you know, think about this. Think, think about how easy it would be to really jump up the number of ducks using your property through a, a wood duck nest problem. Now, now, granted, a lot of the young birds are going to disperse, mm-hmm. but at the same time, if you've got wood duck habitat at all, what a, what a, what a great cost-effective way over long term, say a club in the state of Mississippi, to just wall to wall put out wood duck nest boxes, it, yep. it, it could it could be a great way as we're waiting on mallards to migrate south. It'd be a great way to increase our seasonal bag. And yep, uh, I agree. And, and there's no denying. There's really no denying uh, the environmental change we're seeing. Uh, colder, yep. colder, uh, briefer cold spells. Mm-hmm. warmer winters and, and, and on the flip side of that black-bellied whistling ducks for example you know since katrina and rita back-to-back years back when 2005 or six we're starting to see a lot of whistling ducks up north they use our nest sure. boxes they use our wetlands and mm-hmm. it's become a topic of interest for me that that now there are reports of black-bellied whistling ducks having gotten all the way up to delaware and ohio I even heard a, a confirmed rumor of Canada. Maybe, maybe they're starting to use it. And and uh, one of the boys down in South Texas, Mr. Gene Campbell, told me he didn't see his first black-bellied whistling duck down in South East Texas until 1985. And now they're starting to disperse with this this warming trend. Uh, and it, it wasn't, I think, two or three years ago, <clears throat> I got invited to go hike in on some public land with my son and join him and some of his buddies and half our bag that ended up being eight of us seven of us plus a guy that moped in on us and we just invited him to join us but half the bag was black bedded whistling ducks that morning and this was mid-january that's unheard of i i, I cannot recall that at one time in my life shooting black bellied whistling ducks in the state of mississippi in in january 15th it makes me wonder you know if we have birds that are now summering in you know delaware vermont up north what are we going to see come winter I know a lot of these birds that we're looking at right now are going south for the for the winter. So these birds are going to make their way down to us. They're going to go right past us, you know. You know, it makes me wonder that in the in the northern hemisphere we have continental migrations. Uh, yep. We hunt in Azerbaijan, which is still the, still the northern hemisphere, uh, or, or Netherlands, or parts of Europe, and those birds are coming off from northern, more more Arctic locations, right? Yeah. This entire southern hemisphere, there is no continental migration. They just you're hunting more or less local birds. And so it makes me wonder what another 150, 200 years is going to look like. Maybe we're like the Southern Hemisphere. When we go to Africa, we're shooting, oh, they might, they might, they might, uh, Africa, Australia, Argentina, wherever, those birds, those birds will find resources 500 miles away, but they're not flying from north to south and then, and then they don't have a whole life cycle over a flyway. Right. They're, they're just bouncing around uh, finding resources. So who's to say that we're not going to be in the same boat one day? So I know. In time, uh, it could be. I know Ryan Ramsey, y'all know my background's a pharmacist. So I had a, my favorite pharmacy professors. He once said in a class, it's like the only thing, if you take anything away from this pharmacy uh, degree, you're going to get, it took seven years for all of us to get on average, that the only thing constant in the field of medicine is change. I think yeah, that, man. I think that pretty much sums up any, any science field. And that's what, that's what we're, we're trying to do here on our podcast is like being hunter conservationist, right? I know Ramsey, you're world traveler and you bring back, 
you know, African black duck samples to Phil Lavretsky over at UTEP and bleed them and get the genetics research for him and everything like that. So, you know, who knows what's, what's to say is, um, in a hundred years from now, what the next duck species will be, or is, uh, I know here in Louisiana, they got some studies going on about like, for example, in my father-in-law's backyard, he's got a big pond over in Lake Charles area. He remembers about when they first built his house, they all put out wood ducks, wood duck boxes in that pond. It was only wood ducks. And ever since then, every year, the same wood ducks always come back in February 1st to come nest. But there's probably some predatory nesting going on by the black blade whistlers, and it could be adversely affecting the wood duck population. So, you know, it's one of those things where change change is constant, you know, for the better or worse is something that we can really do to stop it, you know, just by well, you know, and mergansers are also nest parasites for wood ducks too. Hoodies are right. I've seen that a couple of times in the past as well. But I mean, regardless, either one, I've I've shot my fair share of hoodies, uh, mistaken them for wood ducks in the past, early in the morning. But um, yeah, like I said, and I, I want to go back to this with, with the the mallards and Ramsey. You've hunted the Atlantic Flyway quite a bit, I'm sure. You've killed your fair share of black ducks. It just what is it about black ducks that just seem to be a real trophy bird? I don't know, but I love them. Golly, do I love a black duck. And I've, I've shot so precious few in the deep mm-hmm. south. Um, I can, it's so, so few that I can remember the last one I shot. Uh, it's, been, it's been 20 years ago at least and uh, that, that I've seen one to shoot. But I, I love black ducks, and I don't know what it is about it. They, they stick out. Uh, they're wary. I don't think they come in quite as readily as mallards. Uh, they're a little more temperamental. But I love them. I think they're just a beautiful duck. That, that was my goal this past season to go for a, a black duck. I didn't make it to my, uh, South Carolina, but it's, I just, I don't get it. You know, I do a lot of reading, a lot of, I read a lot of these old books, a lot of them are from the East Coast. And, uh, it just seems like these guys are, they, they, they seem to praise them. The same thing you said, right? It's all about, uh, they're a little bit smarter than most birds. Kind of like mild bucks in the sense that it seems like after the first few days of the season, they, they smarten up pretty quick too. You know? They do. They do. They do. But I, I do. I, and I like all the species. Don't get me wrong. I love them all. Absolutely. The way. Absolutely. So kind of pivoting, Ramsey, I know with all the travels you do, is there any, I guess, sentimental piece of equipment or gear you use or always take with you in a blind bag? And it can include, we can also include blind snacks too as well. Anything that Ooh, you just never snack. leave home without? Anything you think of across the world or even local at home? My duck call, my pocket knife. Um, you know, really and truly, I, I would say that that uh, my my blind bag, and it is is just practically the same thing. No matter I'm going to Argentina or Azerbaijan or Mexico, it, it, it's the same thing. It's uh, I've got my shell belt, I've got my duck calls, I've got my chokes, um, I've got a headlamp. P- pretty basic stuff. Wet wipes, you know what I'm saying, and oh, uh, put sure. nature calls, but um, but but really and truly, it, it, it's kind of the same thing. I, I'm not a I'm not a snack fan, and in, in way of snacks out in the out in the blind, if I'm gonna be hunting till noon or one o'clock, um, probably gonna have a, a thermos. I, I never leave home without a thermos, whether it's international or, or domestic. I'm I'm gonna have hot tea uh, if that's the culture over there. Or I'm gonna have coffee, one or the other. Uh, especially if I'm being a blind a while. Some of these, some of these wham bam, thank you, ma'am hunts we do in South America or Mexico. You don't need coffee in the blind. Um, and I'm on, I'm gonna probably probably chew tobacco. You know what I'm saying? And, and until I get back to lunch, I'm I'm not I'm not I don't want to be sitting there eating a pop tart or eating something and 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 ducks come in. And in, in, in North America, especially uh, yeah. when you least expect it, expect it, especially on those hunts where you kind of grind it out till eleven o'clock, maybe shoot a limit or some of a limit of ducks. I, I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want to drop my guard eating something or even drinking coffee. To be honest with you, and the, and that be the play and me miss it because I'm I'm, I'm drinking coffee or eating a pop tart. You know, try I try to. And don't don't get me wrong. I will uh, drop my guard every now and again. I'm only human, but uh, but I really try to play for keeps. Yeah, you got to play that clean game for sure, especially in this deep south there we hunt. <laughs> tell me about this this jacket. Uh, I'm looking at our, our outline here, and I don't remember this story at all. But apparently oh yeah. I so the way me and Ryan met was on a public land random lottery hunt. So on Tuesdays, Thursdays, you can go to a certain WMA here in uh, Louisiana near his neck of the woods. And it's basically everyone shows up at the parking lot. They put little raffle tickets in a hat 
and you draw for different areas of these uh, hunt zones at a certain WAM here. And so that's where me and Ryan meet. We're like, hey, we came here solo. You can have up to three persons, people per unit. And uh, so we all joined up to increase our odds with another one of our buddies. And we, sure enough, we got picked. So we get to go out hunting. And essentially, I'm still new to this. It's probably my second year, probably second and a half year of duck hunting, like seriously. And I start first year doing it on my own. So I look up where the WMAs are, where I can go hunting. And so I had a, my grandpa's name is Grundy. That's a whole separate story. It's the, I couldn't pronounce grandpa when I was a kid. So it came out Grundy and then he loved it and it stuck. So he gave me one of my very first hunting jacket and it was hot that day because it's Louisiana, you know, weather can be cold. And then all of a sudden it'll be up to like 70 degrees by the time you're done hunting. So I stuck that sucker on the back of a tree branch and two woodies passed by. Of course, I don't know what they are. I think they're going to come in a decoy and usually they don't. So you turn around, just about took off the, uh, the straps on like the pull down and basically just about clipped off the jacket and it all, it was almost done. So, so that's the story of how we very first met. I don't know if you remember it or not. Yeah, but. I, I don't remember that. I remember shooting one doe green, one scalp that morning. That's what uh, we did. Was, there was two. That, that was dude. There was, I've never seen another scalp on that piece of property in my life. Um, I never will probably, but we, we shot the one bird that was in that entire, <laughs> entire WMA that morning. When I when uh, I travel uh when I travel elsewhere around the world in terms of clothing, it's pretty much the same stuff. It's it's the same layers, you know. Yeah. It's weather dependent. It's just just the same stuff. And I and I've, I've really gotten uh, increasingly away from what I call corporate camo patterns. I mm-hmm. I fallen back on my roots. I like I like wool. Like for me, I think is an amazing fabric. I layer up. I, I wear uh, synthetic or wool long johns and. Probably some uh, fleece type pants, or some warm warm pants, and a, and a pullover shirt. Uh, I like the hoodies with that old ball head, and I just Me keep too. pulling on hoodies, you. you know. And and uh, I just layer up for the weather, and and that I'm, I just really try to keep it simple. And it, it really, t- I'm I'm fixing to hit the road uh, Monday. I'm gonna leave, make a run up to Canada for about six seven days, shooting late season snow geese, and it, it'll be it'll be ninety percent the same. Same contents in the duffel bag, same shotgun, same shell, same everything in its place. I got my little backpack, got three zippers, everything in its place. The pitch black, dark blindfold that I can reach in and get my hands on what I needed and just keep it simple, you know. And, and that's, that's just me. Uh, but I never leave home without a duck call. And I, I've got a few straps. If I'm going to Argentina, I've got a, I've got a, I've got a, 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 a duck lander that's got a certain set of calls and, if I'm hunting anywhere in the northern hemisphere, I've got a duck trap. Got it. Got the other set of calls. And that's just kind of. And if I think I might be going goose hunting, even though I'm not a great goose caller, I can call geese. I've got my goose calls. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Southern Roost, the podcast show for the Flyways and Highways Collective. Connect with us by searching Flyways and Highways on Instagram or Facebook. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five star review on wherever you get your podcast from. It really does make a difference. Tell a friend about our show. Even better. Bring someone new into our beloved duck culture. Till next time, this is the Southern Roost, signing off.